0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this inaugural lecture, Alan Cotton, Honorary Professor of Art at the University of Bath, presents stories about people and places from his travels. Welcome to the University of Bath. I'm Glynis Brakewell. I'm the Vice-Chancellor of the University and it's a great pleasure and a privilege for me tonight to introduce our speaker. Alan Cotton has for many years been regarded as one of Britain's most distinguished landscape painters. His work is included in many of the important collections across Europe and North America, including the Royal Collection. Morocco, Provence, Tuscany, Cyprus, Venice, and the west coast of Ireland, not to mention the North Devon Coast and most recently Tibet have all inspired Alan's work and have been captured magically and moodily in his richly textured, light-imbued images. Images that cut into the mind's eye indelibly. Alan has done much to support the arts in the Southwest particularly working with children, students, and disabled painters. He is patron and president of a number of arts societies. Indeed, he was the founding president of the Southwest Academy of Fine and Applied Arts. <coughs> he was, for many years, a director of the Exeter Phoenix Arts Centre, and the University of Exeter awarded him an honorary doctorate in 2006, beating the University of Bath, I might add, to that, um, to that very sensible action. Hmm. He's a great advocate of the Prince's Trust and indeed accompanied Prince Charles as tour artist on his visits to Sri Lanka, Australia, New Zealand and Fiji in 2005. Earlier this year the University of Bath had the great good sense to confer the title of honorary professor of arts on Alan recognizing his increasing role in support of the work of the interdisciplinary centre contemporary sorry the institute for contemporary and interdisciplinary arts and indeed our project to build a new centre for the arts here at the university His lecture tonight is the inaugural in a series he will give. His title is A Sense of Place. Please join me in welcoming Professor Alan Cotton.
1: Thanks, Dennis, for that very generous tribute. Uh, I can't wait to hear what I'm gonna say now. The title of my talk tonight is A Sense of Place, and before I illustrate that with paintings from various locations that I've worked on, I just wanted to say what that kind of means to me. Um, If you were in Piemonte now, in northern Italy, uh, where they have just gathered in the grape harvest to make the Barola wine, and you walked in the vineyards, you would see amongst the mists in the fields the most incredible colours from the the vines themselves, which stem from lemon yellow right through to the deepest purples. And that is a magical landscape. But if you transferred yourself now to the west coast of Ireland, where you get clouds coming off the Atlantic and creating deep shadows, and if you get breaks in the cloud, wonderful uh, swashes of light, and that is a very different kind of landscape. And I think for me as a painter, I've needed to engage with different kind of landscapes to keep my work fresh, And to keep up the challenge. But that doesn't explain what a sense of place is, because those are obvious changes, really. Everybody who's been to different places knows there are fundamental differences between locations of colour, place and atmosphere and all that. But a sense of place for the painter is something else, I think. It's, It's this thing which is very hard to define, because you might say, why do you choose a subject? Is it a gut reaction? Is it that wow factor? Something like that. It's something that Graham Sutherland once said about when he was working at Picton Castle um, in in South Wales, that you can walk through landscape and it is wonderful and pleasant and all that, but it's not significant enough to make a painting. And then suddenly one day you see things in a different way, and you see something which is significant to you, whether it's a nuance of the light, or whether it's an inflection of shapes or whatever it is, suddenly, wow! And that moment you think, I must really paint that. It is a compulsion. And I see myself really as part, although I paint abroad quite a lot, I do see myself as part of an English tradition of romantic painting, which you could define, or at least John Piper defined, as talking about a particular place, a specific place in a particular moment of time. Because that's what it is. It's about something that you see as a landscape painting, something you feel, and it's about one moment that you see it And you say, wow, that is the moment I want to paint. And I hope that this comes through in the paintings tonight. But before I uh, talk more about that, and of course the paintings I hope will put some flesh on this idea and expand it, I wanted to go back a little way. And I wanted to show, first of all, um, a slide that I did uh, of my mother when I was about 17 years of age. And I, I mention this for various reasons, because it was my mother that started me off painting. Years ago, 30 years ago, I was doing a film, a half-an-hour film for BBC, the very first film I did. And the interviewer, a man called Kevin Crooks, said to me as I was working in front of this big painting, well, how did you start to paint, Alan? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, my mum made brushes from her own hair when I was a very small kid. And that is a true story. And... Um, uh, that is the way I started to paint. I remember sitting down on the floor working with these little brushes that my mum had made me. And some years ago, uh, and in conjunction with this television film, uh, there was a travelling exhibition of my work which started at Southampton and moved to Dorchester to exit to Plymouth and so on. And uh, there was a private view at Plymouth Art Gallery of the exhibition of my work. And my mother had nothing to do with the art world and uh, was really quite a humble lady um, she came down to the private view organized by the Friends of Plymouth Art Gallery. 200 people there. And that morning it appeared in the Western Morning News inside as a headline. Artist Mother Made Brushes from Her Own Hair. Wow. What a journalistic thing. And so people were surrounding my mom, chatting to her. And she came up to me and said, Alan, you know these people? They want to talk to me. And I said, Mom, you realize you're famous now. <laughs> and also, they want to see if you're bold. <laughs> And, and that's a true story. the truth of it. a mother started me off painting. Okay, let's have a look at a slide. My first memories of painting were trying to escape from my industrial background in Redditch in Worcestershire where I was born to be in landscape very near where I lived. And my first memory was seeing sitting in a field uh, drawing barley against a blue sky. And this represents really that kind of idea. And I thought I'd, there was a, a magic world out there of landscape. And I think it was his early experiences, if you look at the next one, uh, and the different moods of landscape that began to become part of me and wanted to make me into a painter. Okay. Um, at grammar school, I was the boy who was quite good at art, which meant that I got all the posters to do. So I seemed to spend all, half my life in the art room doing exactly things like that. And then I went to the local art school in Redditch. And um, I didn't really get on terribly well there. I'm sure I was a bit of a pain in the groin, really. But the fact was, I wanted to actually paint landscape. And the principal would come in on a Monday morning with some idea that he had, and he would hold up a painting by Kandinsky, a reproduction of Kandinsky's work, or Mondrian and say, we're going to work in this style this week. and Which is pretty pointless, unless you underpin that with the reasons why Mondrian worked in a certain way, or Kandinsky, or whatever. And so I got fed up with this, really, and became the naughty boy. And this was um, reinforced by the fact that I wore a lumberjacks hat in class with laps, which used to drive the principal crazy. <laughs> so I didn't get on too well there, and I found myself disappearing into landscape. And this illustration here is a stu- the first studio I had at a farm. And that building there was my studio, and it was a very secret place for me. And uh, I didn't tell the principal at all what I was doing or why I was going away and why I wasn't attending class. And I was the naughty boy. But there was one teacher in the school who colluded with me and knew that I was serious about my work. But anyway, came the day when the principal said to me, you're really uh, a bad lad, you're not performing, you're not coming to class and I'm going to bring the inspectors to inspect you. And these two Dickensian figures called Mr. Doubleday and Mr. Pickering turned up at the school. And I was very shy. And that fateful morning, I walked up the stairs of this Victorian Gothic building, uh, and I could hear my name Cotton being bandied about rather aggressively behind a door. Uh, And Mr. Doubleday and Pickering were in attendance, and they took me into the room to look at my rather pathetic work that they'd put up that I'd done in class. But unknown to them, the night before, after the, the life class, with the collusion of the other teacher, I'd brought in all the work that I'd done on my own. And uh, that's one of the drawings, actually. But all the drawings I did were big, and they were done in the fields of roots and trees and landscape. And I'll say it myself, because I've still got them, they were pretty damn good. And the, uh, <laughs> the principal suddenly noticed that uh, there was an exhibition of work. Whose is that, he said. And I said, well, it's mine. He said, you're a liar. You didn't do that. And I said, but I did. Well, why didn't you share it with me? I said, well, I can't talk to you. Um, and um, it was absolutely true. I could have no dialogue. And as a result of that, Mr Pickering, Mr Doubleday, took me aside and said, frankly, you're wasting your time here. I'm going to get you into Bourneville and into the painting school of Birmingham, which is where I subsequently went. So moving on from that. Um, uh, then uh, I was at art school for quite a few years, and then moved down to the Wye Valley uh, and the Forest of Dean. and Pat and I then had got married, and I found myself um, away from art school, um, teaching of course, but as a painter, looking at the landscape around which was full of skies and rain and small cottages and really rather wonderful to paint. And that was the very first painting I did once we'd set up a, a place in the Y Valley. The next one, which is a reproduction of the painting downstairs in the foyer, is a very significant painting for me because it was the very first knife painting. Uh, I should have said that I pay, work with painting knives. And what I love is the rich impasto oil paint. That was the very first painting that I did with knives. Now, why it's significant is because in the village of St. Breville's where I lived, there was... Um, the local doctor, John Eskell, who'd be, become friends with the great art critic, John Berger. John Berger, who wrote that wonderful novel, Permanent Red, which we all read at art school, and subsequently did the ways of seeing television series, which are still shown in art colleges, was uh, an iconic figure for me. And the thought that he lived in my village um, years ago was quite a thought. And anyway, the local doctor said, when he comes to the village, Alan, um, I'm going to bring him to your studio to see your work. And it never seemed to happen. <coughs> And then one Sunday morning, I was up very late. And I was in my pajamas, I remember. And I went down the garden to empty the ashes. Heard a crackle up the garden. And over the horizon was John Berger coming with John Moore. And I, I hadn't looked, ceased being a student very long. And I dashed into the house and said to Pat, My God, John Berger is coming down our garden path. Um, let's get something on quickly. And we uh, they came into the house. And he spent a whole day with me. And John Berger was amazingly sensitive to what I'd done as a student, looked through every drawing, took him into the studio, and this painting was on the easel, and the next one. And these were the very first images that I'd done with a painting knife. They were on hardboard, that's all one could afford in those days, and they're very big paintings. And that represents Pat and myself and uh, our firstborn, Juliet, who's in the audience tonight. And they were done in a very kind of rough way, trying to discover what the knife will do. I suppose at art school, I loved the richness of oil paint, and gradually, I took to the knife quite naturally, and it's been my great search ever since to find ways of using the knife to make all these different marks, marks like metaphors for different things. Moving on, um, uh, from where I was in the White Valley, my geographical area was very small, and I did go up to North Wales quite a lot, and drew in the mountains there of Snowdonia. And was really, from an early age, you know, from an early time as a student, uh, felt it was wonderful to be in Snowdonia with the grandeur of these great mountains. And I've just got one example of a painting to show you uh, from that time. I did a lot of work, but that's just one example. And so that my... What I was painting was the Y Valley, local stuff, uh, and making irregular sort is up to Snowdonia. But if we look at the next one, um, this is the first painting I did once uh, Pat and I uh, and two little children had moved down to Devon. And this is material which is very near my studio where we still live. And that's maybe half a mile from where I live. And I became interested in the notion of painting the same piece of landscape through different seasons, different times of year. And that is a kind of spring landscape, um, and the next one would be a very similar kind of view with Muttersmoor and the, the fields, um, and the valleys, uh, in the wintertime. So I painted locally around quite a lot, until I realised that South Devon, East Devon for me, was all a bit soft, a bit too romantic perhaps, And although I painted the River Otter, which is just at the bottom of where we live, maybe a few hundred yards away, with its sandstone banks, and the idea of reflections in water and all that kind of thing, uh, I began to feel that I really wanted to move farther afield, and it was fortuitous that I came to a place called Heartland, and i painted there a tremendous amount. Uh, And recently, two years ago, I returned there to paint and to make a film, and I've got a fragment of that to show you now. I think there are lots of specific qualities about Hartland which made me want to go back. And I think when I went there, I discovered something very special. Why it's different to Cornwall, why it's different to the rest of the coastline, is because of the dramatic ruggedness of it, the way, for example, that are fingers of rock going out into the sea, that are great cathedral-like structures. And so I've painted up there at different times in all kinds of weathers. Uh, and these are the reasons, I think, uh, amongst others, that I wanted to return to Hartland, see if it would inspire me as it used to do, uh, and produce another series of paintings. <clears throat> I think Heartland, for me, was a, a big turning point in my life, really, because the, the kind of North Devon coast was a very rugged place with a lot of drama connected with it, of wrecks and all that. Not a comfortable place to be. But I found, in terms of the techniques I was developing with the painting knife, that the sheer scale of the uh, of the cliffs and the sea hurling in, hitting the coastline, was absolutely what I wanted to paint. And I think my technically my work began to develop from this moment, But I started to use a lot of impasto pigment, a broader range of marks, greater range of colour indeed, and began to construct paintings in a very different way. And that was one of the very first ones I did of a morning uh, up at Heartland, which I did a whole series of smaller paintings and, uh, and drawings, and that is quite a big painting, something like six foot across. And if we look at one or two more, um, the, 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 this uh, you can imagine the scale of that is, is, again, six foot. And it allowed me to use great slats of paint to get into the sensuousness of the material and to sheer enjoy putting paint onto canvas. And uh, this allowed me the freedom to do that, I think. That one is in Plymouth Art Gallery. In fact, most of the paintings I've got in public collections are are of Heartland, actually, uh, which has been very good for me. Okay. And then, you you know how it is with a painter. You find a a particular spot which is wonderful uh, in terms of its composition. And I began to explore one small piece of coastline um, in this vertiginous way, looking down the cliff face um, and looking at the different lights. And this was a, a sort of evening painting looking westward where you get sometimes a very rugged coastline, like the next one, which is very grey and the sea is pounding in. Um, and sometimes, th- like the next one, which is a very romantic kind of painting done in a slightly different way using just the end of the knife. People ask me often about the knives. I mean, how many do you have? Well, I have about a 100, actually, and I keep buying them. I actually only use about four or five. (laughs) It's a bit of a show for the customers, really, but the the point about it is that one knife will make so many uh, different marks. It depends on the amount of paint you pick up, the, the pressure you use, the inflection, the angle, all these things. And once you get inside a painting, it is a great joy to be able to manipulate the paint to create a mood and an atmosphere and finally, with this group, the, the next one is again all these painted from more or less the same spot. And I think we can bring these together actually on a screen to show you the, the contrast between them. I mean, this idea that um, um, Monet used, can we just see?
0: It has, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: That, that many artists have used, like Monet, you know, where you take a particular theme. And you explore the, the nuances of light and time of day and season of the year. is something which particularly appeals to me. Um, and seeing four together, you can see some of the, the contrast. Th- these are quite small paintings, only about so big, 24 inches square. But gradually, I've moved to bigger and bigger canvases at Heartland uh, lately, looking down more and more uh, to give you sort of vertigo, looking down the cliff face and looking along the coastline. And taking a vertical format for the painting, it does allow you to create a tremendous amount of spatial depth, looking to the far horizon and back across the diagonal to where you're you're standing. Uh, And uh, to to work on paintings of great size with a lot of impasto for a painter is quite a turn, I have to say. Okay. Um, I've painted at Heartland, I suppose, for quite a few years and produced more than 100 paintings. One of my favourites is this one, which I wish I still had. And it's really just looking at the changes of angle of the sea coming in, hitting the the ridges of rock uh, and looking at the way the light strikes, the various angles of sea as it comes in. And uh, that one was nothing but a pleasure to do. With painting, um, no matter how much you've done, you have good days and bad days, like anybody else who's doing a job really. And um, some days you have it almost as if someone takes over your hand and helps you do it. Other days, you're totally dysfunctional, especially if you had a late night. (laughs) Uh, And uh, sometimes I go into a studio and look at three days' work and thought, my God, that's so dreadful, and scrape it off again. So you go through all those ups and downs. I mean, the thing is to produce something which you're happy with as a painter, which you want to put your name to. And that's one that I kind of like, really. Okay. Um, There's another sequence, a little sequence coming up to show a little bit of the practice. Perhaps just a little touch of sort of purpley colour, just to make it less boring. Let's see what the tonal strength of that is. Probably go a bit darker than that. Yeah, Definitely. especially around the base of the rocks. I'm painting very broadly at the moment just to try and establish some kind of tonal structure for the painting. Anyway, there's just a small fragment of a a, a bit of the painting process. Um, And you can see that it's a lot of fun to put paint on in that way. I hope you can see that. Um, Right, can we move on? But there came a point when I, I think I got a bit fed up really with working just in the Southwest with the limited images that were there. And I had been teaching. I reached the point where I wanted to make a change. And i have been thinking about it for a long time. And Pat, my wife, was also teaching. And I remember this, uh, what was a significant day for us, when I rang her at her break, mid-morning break at school, uh, and said, "Uh, Pat, are you going to pop home at lunchtime? uh, Because I'm going to come home briefly. And um, she said she was. And I said, well, I need a discussion with you. And uh, what did you say? I said, that sounds ominous. And, um... And at lunchtime, I said, look, I, I need to uh, talk to you quite seriously about something. What I didn't realize was that she thought I was going to tell her about the affair I was having or something like that. <laughs> what, in fact, all I wanted to do was just to uh, say, this is the time, Pat, when I really want to give up teaching um, and painful time, see if i got any talent, see if I can make a living at it. And... Um, that is true, isn't it? It's true. Uh, and uh, we that's what we did. And we actually packed up teaching together, actually, uh, and started a new career. And for two years, it was pretty tough stuff, trying to you know, g- get money to, um to buy kids' shoes and all those kind of things. And although I was doing quite a lot of television films at that time for BBC Southwest, they paid chicken feed, and that certainly wouldn't provide a living. But there was a significant day in my life uh, when I was making a film down in Penzance about the Newlyn School of Painters, and a gentleman came into my life, which has been very significant, the man who's in the audience tonight is uh, David Messum, And um, we were filming an auction sale at Penzance, and there was one very significant painting by a man called Thomas Coop- Cooper Gotch. And uh, the news got around amongst the local dealers that this um, eminent uh, dealer from London was coming down to bid for it, and no way did they want this gentleman intruding on their own private business uh, where they would want to keep buy the painting for a low price and uh, re-auction it in the pub. I think it's called running a ring, not that I know much about those things. But anyway, uh, eventually David Messon did turn up and I had my first glimpse of him in the doorway standing there as he took up the bidding for the painting uh, and bought it and it was my job as presenter on the film to interview him afterwards, out in the car park actually, with the painting that he paid eight thousand pounds for, wrapped up in polythene, put by the hub of a car. I always remember how to had been the centre of a focus of attention, and suddenly there it was, like by the hub of a car. And I was talking to, to David Messam about how he'd had this intuition about the Newlyn School of Painters, and brought them back to great significance, uh, and uh, realised that they were very undervalued at the point where Stanhope Forbes died in 1947, and that was virtually the end of the, the Newland School. And, uh, David, uh, said to me, uh, uh you know, about the Newlin School, how he'd had this feeling when he was working at Christie's, how he'd always thought this work was undervalued and started to deal in, in Newlin School. And then half into the interview, he stopped dead and said, hang on a minute, I've just placed you, you're Alan Cotton. And I said, I was. He said, what are you doing this lark for? And I said, well, um, I, I also need to communicate my feelings about paintings. And he said, well, we've just been looking at your heart and work, and we're going to be in touch with you. And that's the way we met. And um, the rest has been history, really, because I've been with David now for 20 years or more uh, as my dealer, and me as a painter in the studio. And what, what it did, actually, um leaving teaching and being with David, it opened up a whole new kind of world, really, of travel. And whereas I'd been restricted to the British Isles before, suddenly I was able to travel widely, and I went down to the south of France to find the work of some of my heroes, people like Cezanne and Van Gogh and others, and found that a very different kind of landscape, a very different feel of life, really. And I remember coming up on this place of good Uh, in the Luberon and seeing it one summer evening when the shadows were encroaching on this great cliff face and concentrating the light like a spotlight on the top of this Renaissance castle. And it was, and still is to me, an incredible image and I've painted it many times. And it is as a construction, as a series of shapes, I think incredibly satisfying. And that was one of the early ones that I did. I also made a a film for BBC down there and that put together a little sequence of the drawing in the middle which was in my drawing book, one of the first drawings I did, and then the little drawing on the canvas as an underpainting, and um, there's the finished painting, which we can see, I think, uh, next uh, on there. And so Gord is one of those places, because it has this wonderful construction of buildings and roads leading into it, that you could actually paint it from many different, in many different ways and in many different angles. Okay. And um, looking across from Lacoste to bonheur it is one of the most sumptuous pieces of landscape in the world, because in the autumn you get all these wonderful changes of colour, and in the spring you get certain fields which are under blossom, and it is a breathtaking visual feast. This is a view, which is quite interesting, because um, I was in Lacoste one day, the village of Lacoste, with David, David Messam, and we were walking through this cobbled village of Lacoste, and suddenly we were accosted by uh, an Irishman on the steps. And he said, uh, what are you guys doing here? And I said, well, I'm a painter, and I work around here, and this is my dear David Messam. And he said, well, I'm the poet. I'm the Lacoste poet. And I said, great would you like me to give you a poem? And I said, sure. So he stood on the steps of, uh, of Lacoste, and he gave us a poem. which was very accessible, very funny. And, he said, and we applauded him. He said, you like my poems? And I said, great. All right, I'll do you another one. Well, you we couldn't get rid of him. Uh, and eventually he said, you like it here in Lacoste? And I said, well, I've been coming for many years to paint here. And uh, I said, the only thing is, I've never been able to get to a position of seeing the whole panorama of the landscape. I'd love to get to the Marquis de Sade's castle at the top. And he thought about it and said, well, I can't actually quite take you up there, but I can get you very near. So he walked up a little pathway with him, and with a bunch of keys, he opened up a big door in the wall, and we were faced with this kind of view. And he said, this, this is where Mr. Tom lives. And I said, Mr. Tom, he said, well, Mr. Tom Stoppard, the playwright, look after it for him. Would we'll you like to have a look around. And so we had a, a look around various places and these uh, various rooms. And he sort of took to us and said, would you like to have the key to the garden? So David and I worked up there. David did some watercolour, I remember, and I did some drawings and uh, studies and all that sort of thing. And that virtually is the view that we had, which was a great treat. Okay. And from that vantage point, you can look right across the plain. And it, one of the great things about my work is looking into light, because the morning and evening light is the most dramatic And um, sometimes you can look across a whole panorama like that with the shadows thrown forward and things become in silhouette And the drama of it is obvious and appealing to me. Um, And sometimes, like we were there a couple of years ago uh, in April, and you get this wonderful blue evening landscape as the sun subsides and parts of the trees are pricked up with this evening light and you get this kind of magical light glowing across it. and the the trees, almost like fireworks, illuminated. And so I I did a whole series of those which really were very appealing to me. Uh, You realise perhaps that some of the paintings we're showing are quite tiny. This one is actually 12 inches square. Whether it stands up to that implication, I'm not sure. But it it does show a little bit of the drawing, the underpainting, uh, and some of the marks which are left as just the colour of the canvas. And these were looking at lavender fields with their stripes and their patterns in this little tiny painting. Um, I also worked for quite a time in Tuscany and that's a little painting of a place many of you might know, San Gimignano where they have all these uh, medieval towers of which at one time there were more than 70, I think now there are very much, much less than that. But they stand up and it's often called the Brooklyn of Tuscany and again, that's a tiny painting, a few inches square, but it does show the, the way in which the, the mark uh, is important. Um, I work on canvas using toned surfaces. You can see this is part of the underpainting where I'd scumbled this red paint, which I'd left as I dragged paint over it to show poppy fields and things like that. And um, one thing about a knife is that it does explain You know, quite a lot of information in a very simple way. And it is a discipline, but it also, if you're on song, it does allow you to make a range of marks, like metaphors, to explain, explore different things. Uh, When I was in Tuscany, I lived at a village called Strova, uh, where the, the, the church is there and the little farmyard where the geese used to run in and out of the church, I remember. And it was a very rural place, and talking about painting into light, one of the great advantages is that you can you get the greatest light in the distance. And if you get trees like this in silhouette, the shadows are thrown forward. But looking through blossom, you get this translucency, and it does give that duality. Uh, and uh, it's wonderful to explore the idea of looking into light, where you've got the, this duality of, of light and shade. Um, Venice is a, is a subject that every painter wants to tackle at some point. Everyone who does landscape, that is. And as uh, many people have said, Venice is a bit of an old tart. Everybody's had a go at her over time. And it's true, um, because, you know, it, when you find yourself in Venice, you see familiar images, paintings by Turner, Canaletto, Gardi, Monet, um, Singer Sargent, everybody you can think of has had a go there. And Singer Sargent, I think, was the greatest of all the watercolour painters who worked there, actually. But um, familiar views, but trying to find new ways of exploring it. And I love being out there in the very early morning, um, at, at dawn, really, when you can walk through all these various, like, theatre sets, all the various places with nobody around, and looking off the Rialto Bridge, looking down the Grand Canal in morning light, is quite an experience, looking down towards Salute. And again, I've done various variations of looking down the canal like that in different kinds of light. And it's incredible, actually, with the sun rising in the same place every morning for quite a time, you can get all these different changes of light and shade. Thanks, Brian. You've anticipated my getting a bit nervous. great. Thank you. But, um, it wasn't until with Venice that we took a studio there for quite a few months that you begin to understand that there are ways of exploring Venice, which are, you know, for you, rather than somebody else. And I quickly became interested in reflections. And the uh, facades of buildings, in evening light particularly, have glorious colours. And um, you get these wonderful abstractions of shapes and movements. And having a studio there, you observe from the early morning, where you sometimes get a perfect mirror image um, through to the day when the, the boats come down and churn it up. And you get the most extravagant uh, shapes and marks. And the next one shows um, such a view that we had from the studio, where it's very difficult to see whether where the, the sort of uh, buildings are, where the reflection ends and the buildings start. And the only clue is the little boat sort of floating between those two things. Um, this is one of the paintings I did for the Queen Mary, I did a series for the Queen Mary and um, they're on the main staircase and it was a great thing to, to have paintings done in such a public place uh, they were actually done in acrylics uh, rather than oil paint with which I'm much more familiar and acrylics are, are problems to me because they dry so quickly but because of fire risk they were done on aluminium with water-based paint, i.e. acrylics and everything had to be done in that way. I think even the uniforms, the attendants were fireproofed. Um, So that was one of the ones that I did. And uh, from that, I had a remarkable commission from one of the vice presidents of of Cunard um, uh, to do a whole series of paintings for a room in Miami. And so that was a very good uh, sequence for me. And that place there, um, in St Mark's Square, became incredibly familiar. As we waited for boats to come in, for friends to join us, and it seemed always to be raining in the in the spring and the and the winter time, and I uh, became very familiar with that particular view, and it, it allowed me to use with wet surfaces the idea of reflections, and that again is a tiny painting, but gives a little idea of um, that aspect of Venice, which is probably familiar to quite a lot of you. One of the great places for the artist is the fish market. and There was a pasta that I did on the spot in the fish market and I've done a lot of painting since. And It is like a cathedral where they uh, have the fish and they hose down all the time both the floors and it seems to me the fish to keep them fresh. And so all the time you've got this dark interior with, with figures in silhouette and lights dazzled off the floor and uh, it, it is, as I say, a great subject. And I've done some big oil paintings um, of that too, and uh, that's quite a big chap. I remember when I did the drawing there, being very impressed with this man's wonderful concave belly. Con, convex I meant. And that shape against the light was um, very appealing. So that gentleman was the centre point of the painting. But uh, one day, a man came into my life, a little tubby, um, Italian, called Mario Gelotto, And I got to know him as a restaurateur in the southwest. And he kept on saying to me, Alan, why don't you go to all these places? Why don't you go to Tuscany? Tuscany, you should come to Piemonte. It's more beautiful than Tuscany. And eventually he wore me down and I went. And sure enough, I found a magical landscape of hill towns and deep valleys and wonderful color. And uh, I painted there a, t- a tremendous amount. And this idea of sense of place became absolutely vital uh, to me in Piemonte because Mario introduced me to everybody in the the villages around and subsequently took lots of groups of students there and I got under the skin of the landscape I think and met so many people who talked about the, the wine growing, about Barola wines, about the significance of this, the way people worked on the land and I had a different identity with the landscape through the people And uh, in the autumn, which is the the time I really love, you you do get, as I said in my introduction, these wonderful soft mists and valleys and tremendous colour and great patterns in the fields. And uh, that became a tremendous group of subjects for me. And uh, the vines truly are these colours. When I did the exhibition in London, in Davies Gallery of Piemonte Paintings, They were so proud of their region as they are that we had virtually half the village come into the West End. We had um, Don Franco, uh, the priest they called Don Kilometer, he's so tall. Uh, We had the chief of police, we had um, the mayor, and all these people came to look at their work being shown in the West End of London, and it was absolutely marvellous to have all these people who had become my friends coming to England to share them with me. Okay. And uh, when I was out there with Mario, which is, every time I went, Mario came, or I came with him, rather, uh, we used to walk the landscape, and I did drawings, and I, and he looked through my eyes, and I looked through his eyes, and he talked about the people who worked in the land, and all that, and he kept apologizing for the mist, and saying, the light is no good, it, it's too misty, and I said, Mario, it's perfect, because you get this idea of Focus and diffusion where up close to you you get all these wonderful patterns and shapes and colors and looking through to the distances you get all this softness and diffusion as a a contrast and uh, Sometimes the color uh, are like flames absolutely overwhelming and that's quite a big painting and then um, as a contrast I'd been working in Ireland for many years, but it took me quite a long time before I felt I knew enough to actually work there. And I'd read much about the history, not just about the potato famines of the 1840s, but farther back than that. And again, I met someone very significant in my in my life who runs Doyle's, the very famous um, dining place there, who took me to the Basket Island, introduced me to people, showed me around and uh, it actually showed me quite a lot about the Irish way of life and the pubs and the dancing and the music and all those things. And without being any pretentious, I do think all these things feed into the the paintings that you do. So that's quite a big painting of looking out towards the West Coast. Um, Compositionally, I think that for a painter, you really need to keep changing the scale of your work and the different themes. And this vertical format appeals to me much where you can look from something as close up in the foreground as your hand, looking right through to far distances. Uh, And it it does allow you this idea of spatial depth and creating, you know, the feeling of three-dimensional space in painting. The most recent paintings I've done in Ireland I think are the best ones I've done because I'm now using paint in a very emotive way to conjure up this idea of mood and the way that the the skies seem to transform the colour of the landscape, the shapes, and 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 indeed its mood. And and so that that painting there, for example, is a full-blooded kind of piece of work, uh, without very with very little drawing, uh, and just using the paint in an emotional way to to put down what I felt about these little bays and the way the light forms, uh, you know, reflections reflecting the sky. And um, these paintings, I think, come with confidence, really, because it allows you to throw off lots of the detail and lots of superfluous information and get to the very heart of it. And I kind of rate some of these, you know, without being anyway boastful, as some of the best things that I've done, actually. Drawing has always been, for me, the tool by which I start the painting. And so drawing is as natural to me as breathing or doing handwriting. And although drawing is only part of the story, the fact is when you're sitting down drawing something, you begin to identify with the landscape, to understand its shapes and its mood, and you feel the warmth on your back or indeed the winds on your face, whatever, and you're part of it. Uh, And so drawing is really a way into the painting for me but I think it's only part of the story because you work from your imagination all the time. And one of the questions I get asked more than the other, how do you remember color? Well, the fact is you, you do remember color too uh, in a general sense. But a lot of the color that you do is invented on the palette. And I remember years ago pontificating on television about having a palette in my hand and saying you squeeze out bits of paint in a particular color order. What a lot of old nonsense that is. In actual fact... The, the the act of putting down paint is a very childlike thing. And so I have big palettes on the table, and I squeeze paint out as I need it in a very haphazard way. Uh, and you're almost unaware of the parts you're squeezing out because the mixing is very free and intuitive. I think the, the, the most sophisticated parts of painting are the composition, where you, within the rectangle, you place various shapes, and you try and organise the space so that it represents the idea that you feel that you want to put down. So the drawing is important, the composition is important, and I play about with that quite a lot. Um, And the next one shows a painting that came from one of those drawings. Um, So that you go through a process of looking, of taking in, of feeling you've got a great something you really must paint, using means of drawings and notes and all that, but working from your imagination too and then selecting uh, a canvas of, of whatever size, shape, uh, and starting to move forward through that. Uh, and by the time you reach the process, you should have the freedom to make marks like a child and realise the significance of the creative process of picking up wonderful gobs of clotted cream colour and then putting it onto, uh, onto a canvas. And these are just one or two that I've done in Ireland. They're different moods, um, evening light mainly that one particularly, and then um, occasionally people like the peat-gatherer I saw uh, living this remote life upon the on the fells I suppose, and you know, digging peat and moving it around. What a lonely life I thought, gaunt figure, and allowed me to make a drawing of him. <clears throat> and there's another one where the, the sky is very important, and you can see the horizon is quite low down. And the skies became, in this last series, more and more important in the way that it shaped the landscape below. Uh, and then sometimes I move to the estuaries because you don't get the drama quite of the, the actual cliff faces facing the west you know, on the west coast, facing the seas, but you do get on the inland. Some of the estuaries you get a more gentle thing with the, the sea or, or the water cutting through these little edifices making wonderful shapes and eating away at the sand and allowing you to make marks of great chunks of impasto paint to represent the the feeling of movement and the way, again, the sky affects the landscape. So Ireland's been very good for me, and I think some of the critics who write about my work think perhaps the best work I've done is uh, on the west coast of Ireland. But I also have a lot of affection for other places like Cyprus, and I think that One thing that's characterised my work over the years has been the way I've changed locations. And I had the opportunity years ago of going to Cyprus, where I painted for a long time. And uh, some of the colour in Cyprus was simply amazing. This is looking towards the Trudos Mountains. Uh, And um, the way that the farmers have shaped the landscape is interesting by making terraces on which they grow olive trees and lower down the vines. And the way the silt is brought down into the valleys where you get these wonderful umbrelliferas of great height growing and on the fertility of the landscape is simply wonderful and the colour of the hills, these terracottas and pinks something else, and down in the foyer there's one of those paintings which I have in my own collection uh, which shows the way in which it gave me freedom, a different freedom to use the knife to make a greater range of marks I think there's, there's a smaller painting, but the colour, the colour was very important And um, you can see the way they grow the vines in those rows, in those particular shapes, and they um, seem to grow them in a different way, certainly to, uh, to Tuscany and to Piemonte. And uh, the landscape is full of random plants, of thistles and wildflowers and so on. A beautiful, beautiful landscape. And sometimes soft, like evening light, <clears throat> where you get the sound of the crickets working in the fields and um, seeing this softness and gentleness as evening comes on. Okay. And then again, a different landscape. Um, The reason I went to Morocco was through a friend of ours called Art Malik, who's an actor, who several times rang me and said, Alan, you have to go to Morocco, to the Atlas Mountains, because the colour there will blow your mind. And he'd worked there on various films, or the top of the Atlas Mountains, where they have film studios at Wazazat. And uh, when I got to uh, Morocco, <clears throat> to Marrakech, we took a Riyadh, and uh, certainly it was a t- totally different experience for me. And in the square, which many of you know, in Marrakech, at, at midday, you get the light, which is so bright, it does the eye, you can hardly look into it. Figures become in silhouette, and you haven't got paint bright enough to paint with. Uh, But it does allow you to create these deep shadows and wonderful contrasts. And as I moved up the Atlas Mountains... uh, Oh, sorry, this is a painting I did around the edge of the souk. And um, you get deep cast shadows from the the things which overhang. And the costumes of the guys using these wonderful yellows, golds, uh, was quite splendid. And I did quite a series of those paintings around the edge of the souk. Not inside, I have to say, because it's such a cacophony of noise and challenges to buy things here. you. It's very difficult to work. But uh, the Atlas Mountains uh, were a different thing. We actually met quite a lot of the Berbers. And I remember David Messam and Millie, his wife, came out t- to join us there. And we were told to get st- stelos, uh, um um b- uh, Yes, yeah, to, give to, to give to the children because they appear from behind rocks and trees um, wherever you go, and we bought a hundred, and they went within five minutes, and, <laughs> and they even try and grab the um, the pen out of your hand as you're drawing. And I have a memory of David actually like the Pied Piper leading children away, up up the path, up the road while I was trying to make some drawings. <clears throat> so that was a bit difficult, but um, it, the, the, above all else, I think the colour on uh, the Atlas Mountains was something which was new to me and. it it changed my palette completely. And I remember ringing home to a colour merchant saying I need raw sienna, burnt sienna, all kinds of reds which and red-browns I'd never used before to try and create the mood in this painting and subsequent ones like this. Because actually, part of the grand tour for some people in the 18th century was going up the Atlas Mountains. And if you look at those Victorian paintings, they were very brown and and very monochrome, but in fact I found in the evening light some amazing colours in the shadows and great pools of light in the distant hills, and and so on, and it really was, in a colour sense, a wonderful education for me to try and paint it. Um, As the Vice-Chancellor said, some time ago, a few years, I, I had an opportunity to travel with the Prince, Prince of Wales, to various countries, and we first went to Sri Lanka, and we traveled for a long time and arrived um, in their early morning, which was like late at night for us. And it was after the Somali. And um, we uh, well, our, our role really was to talk to some of the aid agencies and meet some of the people whose lives have been shattered by this tr- terrible event. And th- this little painting here was done from a space small drawing I did, traveling uh, by helicopter, looking over the, the landscape with the dawn coming up as we flew towards the coast and looking at the canals and the little pools of light. And it was actually like a dream. And I did several of these small 20-inch square paintings just looking at this kind of um, feeling I had looking over the landscape on our way to, to the coast. Okay. Um, I got very frustrated on the tour because I, I was part of a little group of six the trouble with the prince to many of the events. I went to 28 events through um, Australia, uh, New Zealand and Fiji. And to be honest, we stayed in governor's houses and uh, around us were well manicured lawns and things like that, which I did not want to paint. And I got very frustrated not being able to find the subjects of my work. And it wasn't until I got to New Zealand and we went to South Island that we went to uh, Teora Head where the albatrosses were flying off the cliff faces and suddenly there was a range of subjects with these great birds, wonderful wingspans being brought upon the thermals along the coastal edge and suddenly looking along it I saw great subjects for my work and it was there that I actually was able to draw and start paintings and produce uh, quite a series. (coughs) In fact, some of these the the Prince of Wales actually owns including this, this one here and um, when I went up to Highgrove one time with a lot of the paintings and uh, we were having a discussion <coughs> about painting and as I travelled with him, one of the things he loves is, is painting and talking about it and we talked much about his own work and you may know that he's quite an accomplished watercolor painter has been since he was quite young and uh, St. James's Palace, Clarence House and Highgrove, full of his works but I, I had a notion that because his work is very tonal that he would be a good oil painter. I come on saying to him, "So, so why don't you try oil paints? Why don't you have a go with it?" And I remember at um, at Highgrove, um, he, he, as we were looking at paintings and talking about oil paint, he said, "You know, Alan, you keep on to me about painting in oils, but it's a frightfully messy business, isn't it?" <laughs>
0: uh,
1: and I said, "Well, so it depends, you know, how you uh, handle it, really, and all that." He said. Um, well, I think it is, and then, of course if I, if I painted the in oils, I, I would definitely need a studio, and you can see Highgrove's not very large, <laughs> which I thought was a bit fun, really. But um, uh, he, apparently, I, I met him quite recently, and um, although he didn't tell me, um, Camilla um, the Duchess of Cornwall said that he had been trying the oil paints that I'd given to him and the canvases I'd prepared up in Scotland, but he hasn't shown them yet. I think he wants to do it in private till he feels he's accomplished enough to show anybody. But I have got him a painting in oils, that's for sure. And um, it, it, he's interested in the notion of moving his work forward. I think the problem he has is lack of time, really, because he is a busy guy. Uh, and also, he's surrounded by people all the time. It's very difficult to get private space. Anyway, these are some of the ones that he has, including the next one, I think.
0: No, not the next.
1: And, um, th- uh, you know, it, it was difficult because... Unlike, you know, working in Morocco or uh, in Ireland or in Piemonte, where I had endless time and been many, many visits, this was a fleeting visit. And so you, you really have to work very quickly uh, and to try and engage with the landscape in a, in a very quick way, in a very speedy way. And certainly I brought to bear the idea of the the waves, the seas hitting the coastline, and it, uh, trying to erode it away, and looking down the cliff face which always turns me on and these great seas heaving in were quite a turn on and what was unique here was the little peninsulas of rock jutting out which created pools, almost like still pools of, of wonderful patterns and as in the next one, the, the movement of seaweed around these rocks uh, and these were six foot high paintings, very large, and again, it allowed me to make the marks and to create a feeling of seas hitting the coastline. And the next one, which I think is the best of this group, is where you had all these throngs of seaweed being moved by the sea as it churns in. So those I enjoyed very much. Um, and this final one here are, are these, sorry, these are of Fiji where I did some, I spent some time in Fiji with um, a guy who, uh, you know, who lived there and he, uh, I had a car, and he took me around for a few days when I was able to meet people and do drawings. And it was very cloudy and very stormy while I was there, and these little tiny sketches I made resulted in uh, a small series of paintings. Um, that's quite a small painting, about 20 inches square, but it does show the scale uh, of, of the knife mark and the way that just using simple marks of paint, you can actually create a mood uh, and an atmosphere. Okay. Uh, the, the prince owns the last one and indeed this one of that tethered ox uh, up in the highlands of Fiji. I mean w- w- with travelling w- in that way with the prince it was frustrating really that uh, we couldn't stay long enough to do the work that I wanted but it was a great experience and I certainly learned a lot about the way the prince works the, the way in which he works very hard I have to say uh, and it was for me a totally new experience. Okay and there's the last of them, a little Fiji painting um, on a, a colored background and using light and shade just to create just a mood. And sometimes paintings can be large and monumental, sometimes little tiny studies like that. <coughs> Finally. Yeah. And um, as the Vice-Chancellor said when she introduced me, I've just been um, away uh, up Everest. And um, at least a base camp, and I was there with my son uh, Robin, who's here in the audience tonight, uh, back in May. And um, through our visit, we reached uh, a certain point where, in the middle of the night, we were banging on the door, and Chinese police—I think there were nine of them—Robin came into our room and searched us and uh, looked through all our belongings and everything else. And finally, we we had to leave Tibet without getting any getting up to the monastery, or indeed getting any higher. And that was incredibly frustrating. And um, David Hempelman Adams, who at that time was leading an expedition to climb the North Face, which he, which he did, uh, was very disappointed that I was uh, getting so close without being able to see Everest, really. And he arranged that I, he and I should go out to uh, Tibet again, which we did a couple of weeks ago. And um, we traveled up the mountain and reached base camp, where I did that little drawing and many others. Uh, and a little taster of a series I'm going to do because when I was there, the light was simply amazing. We had clear skies in the daytime, <coughs> and um, David, when when during his expedition in May, he was there for eight weeks and never saw light of the sort that we saw on this day, uh, where in the evening you get the the whole mountain illuminated with a golden light, and it was what I'd hoped for uh, and what I was so lucky to see. And so I have many images and drawings and studies of Everest, which is going to result in a new series of paintings. I'd hoped that uh, David was going to be here tonight, but he's going to lead an expedition to the South Pole in three weeks' time. and He's in London with a lot of the people who are going with him today. But he did this morning send me an email, which I thought I might just share with you. He said, "Um, "Alan Dear Alan, I can tell you, the trip to the base camp was one of the most enjoyable trips I've ever done," he says. "You are a top man. I loved your company, and you are well of a, and you are one hell of a tough old bugger." <laughs> and he said, "More importantly, you opened my eyes to see the light. Some things I had never seen before. A truly lovely trip." So, although David can't be here tonight, I can. I shared a great experience with him, and uh, for uh, I think for five days we didn't take our clothes off. We just got into our sleeping bag with five or six layers of clothes on and got out in the morning, and I don't think I washed for five days while right, I shave shave. And we had a little ceremony at the end with our underpants, <laughs> where we said, well, they've been very good to us, but now it's time to uh, depart. <laughs> so it's been a great experience, and um, I've got so many images in my head, and on paper, which is going to be the start of a new series. Um, I hope, without keep mentioning the words sense of place, that you've got what I mean by it, about the, the uniqueness to me of certain subjects, and how you try and get under the skin of the subject by being there a lot and spending time, drawing, taking in, which is for me a passion. And, um, and that's about it really. That's what I do. Uh, and that's some of the places that I've been.